Welcome to the Continuing Education Podcast for CASA Volunteers, connecting you with experts who can advance your advocacy for children and families. I'm your host, Maggie Halpin, and this is CASA on the Go. Hi, everyone. I'm thrilled today to share with y'all another special episode drawn from our Distinguished Speaker series. This week, we're bringing you a short dialogue between our Texas CASA CEO, Vicki Spriggs, and Ricky Wilchins, researcher and advocate on issues of race, gender, and equity. This short but information-rich conversation focuses on how child advocates can be more aware of the impact of gender norms on the youth we work with. And I wholeheartedly recommend watching Ricky's 30-minute talk, delving even more deeply into the topic. You can find that video featured on our website. Hope you enjoy this special episode. Now let me introduce our speaker with great pleasure, Ricky Wilchins. Ricky has 25 years of experience in research, policy change, and program development on issues of race, gender, and equity. She is the author of six books on gender theory and politics, including her 2019 book for funders and grantees titled Gender Norms and Intersectionality, A Guide to Race, Class, and Gender. And her writing has appeared in outlets like the Council on Foundations, Grantcraft, and the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy. Ricky has been profiled by the New York Times, and Time Magazine selected her as 100 Civic Innovators for the 21st century. Please join me in welcoming Ricky Wilchins. Hi, Ricky. Hi, Vicki. I'm so glad to be here with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. It's it's our, oh God, it's our pleasure to have you. We have about 14 minutes and um, eight questions. So I want to be able to really get to those because you have so much to share. um, And it's so powerful that I just want to make sure we get through as much as we possibly can. So I'm going to combine the first two questions that I received. Um, One deals with culture, one deals with stereotyping. So you talked about how culture impacts how we see and respond to in our perception of what gender roles and and gender is. So can you talk about how gender relates to culture and then go on to talk about why you think gender stereotypes perpetuate today? Well, there's really strong connections between um, gender, race, and ethnicity. For instance, we know that um, young girls of color are more likely to be uh, pushed by um, um, care providers and or adults and or parents to be, you know, more, you know, submissive. Uh, and um, um, boys are more likely to be pushed to be, you know, strong and, and tough and so forth. Uh, studies show that by the time they're 16, 80% of compliments the girls have heard is about their, uh, their looks and their appearance. This goes higher in some communities than other. Um, with boys, of course, they're complimented on how uh, strong or athletic they are. Um, we know that this is strictly true around, for instance, boys of color, uh, who are often perceived as being older, um, and bigger than they are, and in some cases, uh, more likely to be perceived. Someone used the unfortunate term future felons. Uh, in, in thinking about the school or prison pipeline. Um, so we know that those kind of connections between race and gender, or I think of it as race and gender bias, are, are, are out there. Um, there's also really uh, interesting ethnic connections. There um, are epidemic levels of uh, depression and suicidal ideation and actual suicide attempts among 
uh, for instance, uh, young Latinas, particularly if they come from very uh, traditional uh, families, as they enter adolescence, the girl's desire for self-expression and to uh, explore herself and actually explore her sexuality become a battleground for families. And often young girls feel the only way out, unfortunately, is, of course, suicide. Uh, and there's an undiagnosed epidemic around that. And that's a place where, you know, normative beliefs around what kinds of femininity girls are supposed to show. They're kind of more traditional, submissive, um, docile femininity, and um, the actual culture that they're in uh, kind of collide and uh, cause lower life outcomes for girls in mental health and actual basic health and wellness. You know, why do these things, yes, why do stereotypes, why do gender, gender stereotypes stay with us? I, I, that's a $64,000 question. If I knew that, I'd be on a much bigger platform. <laughs> I'd be doing a TEDx talk somewhere. I don't think anybody really knows it. I mean, look, almost all the major institutions uh, which we all have to navigate, um, the military, uh, the courts, uh, the hospital systems, education, certainly religious institutions are highly gendered and gendering systems that anticipate, reward, and even punish very specific types of femininity in girls and masculinity in boys. But they seldom interrogate their own gender assumptions, so they're usually kind of unaware of them, which means they're unable to change um, how they treat kids and look at them. I and mean, that's part of the raise and debt for true child is to help organizations become a little more aware of their own uh, gender biases or whatever stereotypes they might be putting out. Super. And I, I have to say, I absolutely appreciate you really talking about in your presentation, the intersectionality of race, class, gender, um, and then even starting this piece as it relates to culture, because again, the cultural manifestations are different in genders um, as well as races. And so I, I appreciate you making that point as well. Um, sure. I think that um, when we talk about culture, yeah, I mean, it is a $64,000 question. It's like, why does it perpetuate? There are so many institutions, like you said, that just keep pushing out the same message, which is then pushing this information on kids. Can we talk about, or if you don't mind sharing your opinion and experiences on how this pushing of these gender roles and these gender messaging uh, systems can impact the self-esteem or might impact the self-esteem of the young people that we work with? Sure, we were actually asked to um, um, do what I call a gender audit of one of Texas' largest uh, foster care uh, systems, but with a particular emphasis on um, um, dual status kids who go back and forth, obviously, between uh, foster care and the juvenile probation system. <clears throat> and what we found was kind of, you know, across the entire plane of contact that these young people have with systems, there are, there are constant expectations about how boys are supposed to be you know, young men and how um, girls are supposed to be young women. And also the people who come in contact with them are unconsciously uh, modeling specific kinds of, you know, manhood if they're male or, or womanhood if they're female. But um, what we heard from everyone, really from child placing agencies, from foster care institutions, from um, RCTs, just from individual folks uh, who are court advocates, was there, we don't get any training uh, in how to talk about this or think about this, except maybe for LGBT, but not certainly for the other 90% of kids who are not gay or transgender. We get no training in this. We have no materials 
for how to initiate these dialogues with young people one-on-one or in small groups. Um, we don't have anything to help us become more aware of our own gender, uh, gendered and race biases, uh, and, and our own uh, feelings about gender stereotypes and norms. So it, it, it's kind of across the entire surface of contact these kids have with systems. And so um, our hope is actually to start a jumpstart a little bit of a dialogue today and down the road about where these needs are and how we might be doing a little more uh, about that. Super. And and in your, and thank you, you, in your presentation, you talked about microaggressions. And I think as we talk about um, what you just said, it made me think about that piece on your microaggressions, because when we sure do these um, traditional gender messaging or role things, even the best intentioned people, caseworkers, RTC workers, probation officers, CASA volunteer advocates, whoever, um, they want to create relationships. They give the boy the football and the girl the doll, and they don't understand the microaggression, what, what's happening right there, and what's, what, um, what might be the resulting feeling of the child yep. who yep. is now feeling like, oh, I thought they got me, they don't, right? And these um, are uniquely, uniquely vulnerable kids who really want to please often, want to please adults or need to please adults in order to survive. And not just adults, it's others in their own social system who are also microaggressing. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I think I may have interrupted you, but I think you're absolutely spot on. Well, no, I just, I, you said everything that I would have... <laughs> completed the question with. So, we were so, just separated at birth, Vicky. Let's just put it out there. Well, no, you I know, think it's, <laughs> Vicky, I agree. I was like, this is my sister from another mother, but let's go. Go ahead with that. <laughs> People who are tuning in don't realize that Vicky and I had a phone call two years ago, and we just clicked on this so well. For two years, I've been quietly stalking her, hoping for this moment. So it's really the first time we've really met face-to-face, as it were, and I had a chance to talk in depth since it's been almost two years, so I'm very delighted to be here. Microaggressions, the interesting thing about them is, you know, it's not like upfront discrimination. If you call someone a name, I think we kind of get that, but microaggressions are often things where, that sound like compliments but aren't. Um, um, I had a, a woman in a session that so someone walked, said to me and said, oh, you, you'd be so cute if only you lost weight. Um, someone else said, oh, you're so attractive for a black girl, you know, which sounds like a compliment, but it's really an insult. And it's often the person doesn't realize what they're saying. I, I keep thinking of the, the big example, of course, is when, uh, um, uh, our, our, uh, was when Biden, you know, said about Obama that he's clean cut and articulate. He didn't mean it as an insult. He just, he would never think to say that about Mike Bloomer because we expect white billionaires to be clean cut and articulate. So it comes out of these unconscious biases that we all have. I don't mean to pick on the vice president or anyone else. All of this come with race and gender biases because all of us grew up in certain kinds of wrappers of privilege and you have to do a little bit of anti-bias work and I hate to call it navel gazing, but really to understand a little better about your own attitudes and where your own blind spots are in terms of how you see other communities. I'm sure that I've done things that, for instance, my friends of color thought were microaggressions. I didn't mean to, I just didn't frame something right and I wasn't completely sensitive or even my friends who are differently abled. You know, so we all do this all the time. Even my, even my Hispanic friends put up with my terrible accent, although me encanta hablando español. But you know, I still sound like an I still sound like an Anglo when I Anglo when I do it. My daughter, who's only studied for a couple of years, has this flawless Spanish accent, which I have not forgiven her for. <laughs> when they're young, they pick it up so quickly. 
But um, all of us come with, you know, these, these biases. They're not necessarily always bad things. They're just things we haven't looked at. And the job of uh, the anti-bias training is to help us look at our microaggressions and hopefully be a little better with it. Absolutely. And just be aware. It's, it's not, it is not a bad thing unless you recognize you have the bias and choose not to deal with it. Then it's a bad thing. Yeah, um, yep, exactly. Can, yeah. can you talk about how a CASA uh, volunteer might integrate, or anybody actually, might integrate gender norms when interacting with young people? We do not have a lot of materials, I'm afraid to say about this. One thing that might be helpful for them, there's a white paper, a very short one, up on our website at truechild.org um, on foster care and gender norms. They might want to download and just take a look at. Um, there's also one on juvenile justice and gender norms a little bit longer, but that might give them some of the basics. But I think part of the challenge and one of the things we found with the gender audit is that those materials don't exist yet. In fact, we're uh, talking with some funding sources about maybe trying to develop some pilot materials and working with groups like CASA and others uh, to see if they work and, and making them available for free to advocates who are doing this you know, phenomenal volunteer work. So this is kind of where the discourse is going, not where it's been. I think we're finally in this wonderful overdue Black Lives Matter moment we're having now nationally. We're getting much better at recognizing um, um, racial bias and structural uh, inequality when it comes to race, and you start doing the same thing around gender, or what I call structural genderism, for lack of a better term, and how all of this contribute to uh, gender systems. And it's particularly regressive sometimes, I'm sorry to say, with, for instance, juvenile probation systems, or RTCs, um, who really, you know, uh, just often are very traditional around gender roles, unless you're coming out as, you know, gay or transgender. And I say this to someone, I've got a 14-year-old daughter at home, I have so many conversations with her, as I'm sure every parent does, about, you know, what it means to be a woman and what to expect from intimate relationships and how to carry herself and what she can wear and what she shouldn't wear and how certain things communicate to others, you know, things that she might not like, you know, and, and you know, clothing and so forth. And it's like, I, you know, you can look at dual status kids. They're not getting that input on a consistent basis from any adult figure uh, in their lives. And particularly if they've been traumatized, you know, there's a whole thing around gendering trauma-informed care and how boys and girls react very differently to being traumatized with girls. It's usually around sexual trauma with boys. Of course, it's usually around violence. Um, there's just so many places, as someone said to me, actually, as a CASA volunteer that I talked with, who said, do you have any idea how many times kids that I work with raise these issues with me and it's not my job and I have no training in this but I'm the person they turn to because they trust me, which says a lot about the wonderful relationships your people create with those in their care, but also the need for us to go a step further. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And we're out of time just that quick. Ricky, I'm so glad you talked about the um, gender informed and trauma informed because we do as a, as a system, as a child welfare system, and as a juvenile justice system, we started moving in that direction in the last, you know, five, 10 years, maybe, um, talking about trauma-informed, but that piece of being gender-informed has been missing from that conversation. Um, and the piece about equity has been missing from the whole conversation, but that's a whole other topic for another time. When we get you to Texas in person, post-pandemic, I'm looking forward to that day. But right now, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so glad I finally got a chance to see you in person and tell you how much I just love you. You too. Um, and I'm going to visit you in South Florida, that's, that's for sure, because I like you. I, like uh, I can hardly wait. 
Thanks for listening to Casa on the Go. Join us next time for more dynamic continuing education brought to you by Texas Casa.